You can open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we've got these ushers here. They're going to walk to the back. Just slip up your hand if you need a copy of God's Word. We would love uh, to put a copy of the Bible into your hand so that you can follow along with us today. And if you don't own a Bible, please just take this home with you as our gift to you. We believe there's no greater gift we could put into your hands than a copy of the very Word of God. As you are opening your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians, I wonder what comes to your mind when you think just maybe big picture about the Apostle Paul's ministry. When you think of uh, Paul and how he served the church, how he began, we were introduced to him as an enemy of Jesus Christ, and then we saw him uh, transformed into a follower and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we saw him go and uh, establish churches as he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. The Savior of the world has come to take away sins, and he proclaimed this message, and people believed, and he planted churches in many cities. He was imprisoned. Uh, he, he continued to uh, write letters to churches. He continued to retrace his steps and go back and visit those who have become uh, followers, converts to Christianity. He spent his life, poured himself out to minister to others. And if we could distill it all down, I, I think when it, it, what comes to my mind when I think of the Apostle Paul's ministry is I think of uh, his passion to um, implore the church of Jesus Christ through his writings to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He called the churches, multiple churches, uh, to this calling in, in different ways. He, he, he wrote and he said, walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. He said, live your lives in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner that is worthy of, of God, of the calling that you've received. Live your life in a worthy manner. Make sure your life reflects what you have come to know and believe about the Lord Jesus Christ and, and see that this is happening in your life in an ever-increasing way and see that this is happening in your life, not just uh, alone personally, but in the context of your church. And this is what I want to look at today. I want to look at it with its specific context in this particular letter, and I want to do so so that we can think about what this should look like in our lives and in our church. Before we um, read the text, I, I also want, by way of introduction, to I just invite you with me to think about uh, the Old Testament story of David and Goliath. Just like I asked, you know, what comes to your mind when you think of the Apostle Paul? What, what comes to your mind when you think of the story of David and Goliath? I'm, I'm sure it could be several different parts of that very captivating and interesting story. But at the very center of the story of David and Goliath uh, lies what David said to King Saul before going in and engaging uh, with Goliath in battle. Do you remember what he said? When Saul looked at him, he, he looked at him, he, you're a youth. You, you're, you're gonna go and you're gonna fight this enemy, this great enemy of ours? And, and David said, well, what did David say? You remember? Don't worry, the Lord's gonna do it. The Lord's going to do it. And then, and then what did David do? He went 
He picked up five stones and he ran, it says in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, he ran to the battle. He told Goliath the same thing he had just told Saul. He, he says, you're coming to me with your sword and your javelin. He says, I, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And then, fully trusting in what God would do, David picked up the stone and the sling and David swung his arm around and David killed Goliath. And what I, the purpose of me bringing this up to you is to demonstrate uh, this picture that uh, when it comes to God's doing and our doing, this is a, a both and, right? It's not, it's not that God's doing is over here and, and our doing is over here and these are somehow opposed to one another. No, what we see in the word of God is that these come together. Our doing and God's doing is a both and. David's son Solomon also uh, reflected this truth in Psalm 127. He said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The Lord builds the house, but still, if, if we're looking at this uh, metaphor, this picture, you've still got the framers, you've, you've still got the bricklayers, the roofers, they're still doing the work, even though it is God who builds the house. It's not an either or, it's, it's a both and. and. And our tendency in the Christian life, I believe, what I've seen in my own life and in the life of, of you in the church and as I talk to people, is to make things into either or when God has made them a both and. Living as a follower of Jesus in a worthy manner is both our doing and God's doing. That's what we're going to see from the text before us. One author says this, it's a mysterious collaboration. That's been uh, so helpful for me over the years to think of living the Christian life as a mysterious collaboration between me and the Lord. We don't exactly know how this all works. We can't answer all the questions that we have in our minds about how my doing and God's doing come together. But we accept that this is true because this is what God's word teaches. It is a mysterious collaboration. Uh, this author, he said, uh, the Christian life is dependent upon a Christian's constant effort, struggle, faith, and obedience in conjunction with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It is a mysterious collaboration between the power of God and the effort of the believer. Like I said, this is what I want to focus on uh, in the book of Philippians this afternoon. We're going to see that living in a manner worthy of the Lord requires both my effort and God's power. My effort and God's power. Like I said, we tend to um, make things into an either or and, and we, um, we focus on one aspect here or another, and, and perhaps I've said this to some of you, you might remember, I, 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 I said, if you try and live the Christian life just on your own, without the Lord's power, as if it were totally up to you, you're going to accomplish absolutely nothing. You will not be able to live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Now, the same exact thing is true on the flip side. If you think that living your life 
in a manner worthy of the Lord is something that God is going to do for you, and so you sit back and do nothing, then you will accomplish nothing, and you will live not in a way that is pleasing or worthy of the Lord. Both my effort and God's power is what uh, the Apostle Paul teaches and what the Word of God teaches throughout. I want to begin, we're going to focus on verses 12 and 13, but I want to back up, look at your Bibles to chapter 1 up in verse 27, and I want to be able to set the context uh, for the verses that we're going to focus on today. Uh, The Word of God says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it's from these two verses that we last read, verses 12 and 13, that I want to draw out two points for you today. I've already told you what they are first one is this, living in a worthy manner depends on my effort. Depends on my effort. Uh, These two verses, verses 12 and 13, they center around, everything comes before, leading into or out of uh, this command, the one singular command, work out. Work out your salvation. And uh, I want to uh, just begin by saying, that it doesn't say work for. 
It doesn't say work for, it says work out. And so we know the Apostle Paul is not talking about earning a righteous standing before God. He's not talking here about obtaining salvation. He's already writing, if you, if you just look back, who's he writing to in chapter 1, verse 1? To all the saints in Christ Jesus, to all the holy ones, all those who have believed and have been saved. Right? He, he is writing to the church. He's writing to believers. He's not telling them, hey, work at getting saved. If we could work for our salvation, then it wouldn't be called salvation. I want to be really, really clear about this in a point called my effort. We're not talking about earning salvation. We saw even in our reading in uh, verse 28 of chapter 1, Paul references your salvation and he says, and that from God. If you drop down to chapter 3 and you look at verse 9, it, it says, and be found in him, that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not earning it through good works, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is how we are saved. That is how we obtain salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. To belabor, belabor this even more, I'm going to just give you a couple more references and I'll read them to you. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul there says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Again, the Apostle Paul says, He saved us, not because of our works done by us. Perhaps you're thinking of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But do you remember what comes next in Ephesians chapter 2 after verses 8 and 9? Verse 10, right? <laughs> Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what we're looking at in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Not earning, but expressing your salvation through your conduct. The accomplishment of salvation, God alone does for us. But living out our salvation requires both God's divine work in us and our diligent effort. So a word, if you are with us today and you are not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I need you to hear this very, very clearly. The only way to be saved from your sins is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing you could do to earn a righteous standing before God. There's no, no good enough living of life that you could do to live in a worthy manner of Jesus in order to obtain your salvation. 
The Bible tells you what the Apostle Paul told the church in Philippi when he first met them there in uh, their unbelief and, and in their rebellion against God. He says, come to Jesus Christ. Believe in him as your Savior and you will be saved. You will be forgiven of your sins. And then, only then after that, can you live out your salvation. Basically, what Paul is saying here and what he says to all the churches in all his letters is this. Act like Christians. Live out your salvation. And this takes work. This takes effort. And we see this in verse 12 in a few ways. First, we see it through my consistent obedience. My effort involves my consistent obedience. Paul tells them, he says, as you have always obeyed, so keep on obeying. That's what work out your salvation with fear and trembling means. Do this day after day. Don't see your obedience as something that's complete, something from the past that you used to do or you once did, but live it out. You can't separate uh, an obedient life from what it means to just simply follow Jesus Christ. These are both together as one. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? He, he said that to the crowds who, who wouldn't follow him. He said, you can't call me Lord and, and not follow what I tell you to do. And then he told his disciples again elsewhere, he says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Following Jesus, loving Jesus, trusting him, all of this is inseparable from obeying him. And, and we see this really clearly in John chapter 3 and verse 36. I want to put that up on the screen for us so you can see this. In John three thirty-six, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe, no, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See how belief and obedience cannot be separated. He's, he's t in John, this is talking about the same thing, just using two different words. And this helps us to understand what's going on in Philippians 2.12, where first he says, just as you've always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about a pattern of obedience. If we claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must live a life of consistent obedience. Complete devotion to Jesus. This is what he requires of us, and this is what he deserves. And Paul says to the Philippians, this has been true of you since the beginning, since, since I was with you. It's been true of you since I left, and, and it needs to continue being true of you while I'm gone. Whether I come and see you or I remain absent, keep on obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep on living out your salvation. Since this is true, let me ask you this. Is obedience to the Lord the consistent pattern of your life? If this was once true of you, is it all the more true of you today? 
Does it matter who's around? Are you working out your salvation? Are you living out consistent obedience? Of course, this is hard work. This, this takes great effort. John Calvin called it a work arduous and of immense labor. It's hard work day after day to resist temptation to sin. It's hard work to keep on serving others and to be like-minded with the church. It's hard work to um, keep on living God's way when you're suffering. It's hard work in relationships when you feel like someone has wronged you and they don't deserve for you to live in a manner worthy of the Lord with them. You know, some people argue against the idea that the Christian life requires such effort, such obedience, and they want to champion grace. They say, what about grace? You're you're neglecting God's grace. And I would say, these are not opposed. These are not mutually exclusive. Our effort and God's grace go together. People tend to sometimes make this an either or, and and they have this well-intended and spiritually sounding saying that, that goes like this, let go and let God. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've even used that. And, and I will um, I will acknowledge that in some very, very specific circumstances, that might be an appropriate saying. But by and large, as we think about the normal ebbs and flows of the Christian life, our day-by-day obedience, our striving to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, we need to throw away the saying, let go and let God. It, it is not automatic that we will live in a manner worthy of the Lord if we just stop trying, right? I would say to people who want to argue that God's grace somehow um, puts aside our effort, I would say to them, what do you make of all the commands in Scripture? What do you make of this very verse that calls us to work out our own salvation? There is no good answer for that. And so here's what we need to do. Uh, We need to exchange slogans. When someone says to you, uh, next time, let go and let God, you need to tell them, trusting does not cancel trying. That was a good one. (laughs) I didn't make it up, by the way. I read that this week. I thought that was pretty good. Trusting does not cancel trying. The Word of God says, work out your own salvation. Live it out, and this takes much effort. Now, um, very sincerely, I I want to say to some of you that um, you're not walking closely with Jesus. Your life does not um, reflect one's life uh, who's living in a manner worthy of the Lord. I'm not thinking of anybody, I promise, in particular. I, I just think in a room with this many people, that must be true of some of us. You're not growing spiritually. You're not experiencing um, the joy of a, of a close, personal, and communal Christian life. And for some of you, the reason lies um, in this very text, um, it's, it's because of a lack of effort. 
you're not working at it. You're not obeying this command to work out your salvation. You would say that you're all for the idea of being a godly person and and you think you would acknowledge all day long that living a life worthy of the Lord is what the Christian ought to do. But through the way that you're living, you're demonstrating that what you truly believe is that this is something that happens to you exclusively and not something that you participate in. And if that's you today, I just need to remind you, again, from God's word, I hope you're seeing it very clearly, that consistent obedience is what is required of you from the Lord. And perhaps you you hear that word obedience and you're thinking, well, I can't think of anything that I'm doing that God has told me not to do. You know, I'm just, I'm living my life. I'm not... um, I'm not overtly doing, engaged in anything that God has specifically prohibited me from doing. And, I mean, I I guess I have two things to say. That one is it's just not true for any of us. But uh, number two, you're, you're completely forgetting the other side of obedience. There's only one side of obedience, right? You're thinking about um, sins of commission. When you, when you do something that God told you not to do. But each and every one of us needs to think about sins of omission when we don't do what God has commanded us to do. And I, I would say these are far uh, greater uh, in the Christian life, especially as you mature in your walk with the Lord. It's much easier to just kind of not do the things God said not to do than it is to be engaged in the things that God calls us to do. And there's just as many commands in Scripture that tell us what we should be doing that we often don't do. Paul, um, the reason why I read from where I read uh, is because he has a a particular... um, Context. He's thinking in a particular context as he writes this command in verse 12. And, and this context makes it so that we can say, secondly, that my effort includes my considerate attention. My effort includes my considerate attention. Uh, to what end am I extending this effort, like what exactly is it Paul has in mind as he writes the Philippian church that they are to, um, what is this, the sphere or the realm that he's thinking about? Obviously, this applies to all of life, but he's writing it uh, in the flow of a particular thought. And he begins by saying, therefore, in verse 12, he's reaching back to the example of Christ, and he's telling them to follow the example of Christ. The humble, other-focused, God-glorifying obedience of Christ. This is what he has in view when he sends this command to the church to work out their salvation. He's thinking about unity in the church. He's, 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 He's writing here about what it means to live in harmony with the church in a manner that is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. How you think dictates how you live. You, you know this 
Um, you've heard that often here, how you think will dictate how you live your life. And, and Paul here, he's, he says, be considerate of others. That, that is the context in which we find our command this afternoon. And what he's after here, I don't know if you picked up on it as we read, it's not a shallow kind of thinking about others in the church, is it? There's a great depth here to the kind of relationship, uh, the kind of harmony and unity that uh, the Lord desires for us to have as a church. So let me ask you, are you preferring yourself over anyone in particular in the church? Maybe there's somebody very uh, specific the Lord might bring to your mind even right now. Is there someone in the church whom you are not unified with, who, who there's no harmony with? And if there is, let me ask you this. What are you going to do about it? What effort are you going to put forth to strive side by side, as it says, with them for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How are you going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and humble yourself and empty yourself and and die to yourself? See, God's word calls us to really think hard about prioritizing others above ourselves. This is part of our great effort in the Christian life. And then lastly, what we see here is that my effort involves my contemplative worship. My contemplative worship. The Apostle Paul says, in working out your own salvation, do so with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, well, what is, what is this? What is this talking about? What does this look like? See, most of the time when we think of fear, we think of uh, wanting to get away from danger. But that's not what's being talked about when it talks about, in God's word, fear and trembling. This isn't a fear that drives us away. It's a fear that drives us toward God, worshipfully bowing before him. I want to offer a few different ways to think about this um, that I've found helpful. Uh, The first is just thinking of a few words. When I think of fear of the Lord, I think of wondering, trembling, adoration. Wondering, trembling, adoration. And each of those words are packed with uh, meaning and and depth. When when wondering uh, would... Um, I hope maybe in your mind make you think of, of just, again, being uh, contemplative, be, being in awe, just uh, being quiet and still, uh, shutting out distractions and uh, looking hard at God, trembling. Um, you know, when you think of shaking, we, we, we think of... Um, just a response, an outward response to what we see as we wonder about God. And then adoration would just be, again, that worship piece. Worship literally means to fall down, to bow down 
This is what it means to fear the Lord. A little longer uh, definition. Uh, I'll put this up. It's just to honor God as God. To live worshipfully before him. With reverence and awe. To love what he loves. And to hate what he hates. All right, I'll read that one more time. To honor God as God, to live worshipfully before him with reverence and awe, to love what he loves, and to hate what he hates. This is, um, again, it's not different. It's just a different way of expressing the fear of the Lord. Um, Proverbs, in the Proverbs it says, the fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil. To turn away from evil. And again, that goes with uh, what I'm offering here as some other ways to describe the fear of the Lord. To turn away uh, from evil is to honor God as God. And it is, to turn away from evil is to live worshipfully before him with reverence and awe and to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And this goes Um, so appropriately with our obedience, doesn't it? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we must put in the effort to work out our salvation. Steve Lawson, he comments on this in this way. He says, the fear of the Lord, it, it is a wholesome, healthy, reverential awe for God and a sober realization of the need to take him seriously. And what he says next, I, I, I agree with. This is what I think we see. This is often downplayed today as a legitimate motive for Christian living, but it was not so with Paul. This is a soul-gripping fear that grips them to the point of trembling. This word indicates a quaking with fear, This phrase carries the idea of a Christian doing his utmost to fulfill his duty because he knows to whom he owes that duty. He has wondered at this God. He knows him and he knows what he owes him. He knows what it looks like and what it means and the seriousness of living in a manner that is worthy of his name. The fear of the Lord in working out our salvation is not even close to casual. Sometimes the way we think about the Lord, the way we talk about the Lord, or the way we talk to the Lord, the way we live out our Christian life is far too casual than it ought to be. We need to take heed to the Word of God. And live out our life with fear and trembling. Now you might be wondering, well, how do I grow deeper then? How do do I grow uh, deeper in fear and trembling? And I'm going to offer two ways to grow deeper in fear and trembling the Lord. 
And they're going to be a huge surprise to you. Are you ready? (laughs) Read the Word of God. Read the Bible. And when you read it, read it with the purpose of seeing the glory of God. Read it with wondering, gazing eyes, ready to tremble at what you see about God, about what he reveals to you about himself in the pages of Scripture. I love what God says to Moses in Deuteronomy. He says, gather the people to me, that I may let them, what? Hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. A word for the parents in the room. Teach your kids to fear the Lord. Teach them to tremble. Teach them the seriousness of the God that we serve and worship. Read your Bibles to see what our triune God is like. Who he is. What he's done. I mean, even just in this very passage, if if you look back at uh, verse 9 of of chapter 2, Talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He he came. He laid down his life. The everlasting son of God. The ever living one. He came and he died. And he rose again. And he went back. He ascended to the father's throne. Look what it says in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Everyone else. Living or dead. Has been created. Every, every person, every angel is below Jesus Christ, right? And at the name of Jesus, they will bow the knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is our Savior. We need to read the way he has described what he has done, who he is, what he has said, and we need to be gripped with awe with fear and trembling. Second way to grow in fear and trembling, why don't you just tell me what it is? Pray. Pray and ask God to increase in your heart a fear and trembling. It's appropriate, right? That's a, that's a good prayer to pray. Ask him to help you. Pray pray Psalm 86. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may what? Fear your name. Pray that prayer with the psalmist. Ask God to help you fear and tremble as you live out your salvation. We live our lives in the presence of the almighty, awesome God. He commands us with fear and trembling to work out our salvation. But he doesn't leave us on our own to do this, right? He is working in us so that we would have the ability to do what he commands us to do. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here we see, second, that living in a worthy manner depends not only on my effort, but even more so on God's power. My effort, God's power. He is working in you. This is part, by the way, of a healthy fear of the Lord. Why would we ever want to oppose God by being complacent in the very thing that he is actively working in us to bring about? The fact that God works in us serves as a motivation to continue working out our salvation and it, and it serves to show us that the ability to work out our salvation comes from him primarily. We desperately need his help. There's no way that we could ever live out our salvation if it was only dependent on our effort. If we misunderstand this, if, if we don't realize that our effort needs to be undergirded by God's enabling work within us, we might try to live the Christian life in our own strength. And if we do this, it's only going to lead in one of two ways. Either one, we're going to actually um, foolishly believe that we're doing it when we're not. Right? This would lead to pride and, and arrogance, thinking that we've got things down. We're, we're able to live out this Christian life without the help of God or we'll try and do it without his help and we'll fall flat on our face and we'll end up despairing thinking I can't do it what I try I try I try and my life doesn't reflect that of someone who's living in a a manner that is worthy of the Lord we we might even wrongly give up at this point altogether and, and not even put the effort in because we rightly recognize that we can't do it on our own This wouldn't be good. But if we understand that God's power is at work in us so that we can put forth the effort, then we actually can, right? And we should desire all the more to live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. So let's consider what this verse teaches us both implicitly and explicitly about God's powerful work in us. First, See that God's work in us involves his initiating effort. His initiating effort. Verse 13, again, begins with the word for. And conjunctions are really important, not just for those who maybe love grammar, but for every single one of us. It doesn't say, and he will. That would completely change what's going on in these verses, right? If it said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then God will work in you. It doesn't say that, right? It says for, as in since, or because, or remembering that. God is working in you. He's the primary agent. He's the one first acting in us, and and he is working continually in us. That, That verb, who works, is in the present tense. That means it is a continuing, ongoing action. God is continually working in us. This is what Paul said. If you flip back to chapter one and verse six, 
Paul says to the church, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He never stops working in us. Paul, he clearly understood the need for both his effort and God's power, not only uh, in the Philippians' lives, but in his own ministry. Go forward to the book of Colossians. Just a couple pages ahead, or um, maybe a few pages. Colossians chapter 1. Paul describes his ministry. Look at verse 28. He says, Him, Jesus Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, right? So that's just another way of saying so that we could present everyone walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Look at verse 29. For this, I toil, effort. Struggling, effort. With all his energy. God's power, that he powerfully works within me. Paul knows that it is a both and and not an either or. And he tells the Philippian church, he says, God's working in you. If you're in Jesus Christ here today, you need to hear that. God is at work in you. Every single believer. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't stopped working in your life, and he never will. Some of you, maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe God wants to bring comfort through hearing those words today that God is working in you. Maybe he wants to renew your sense of hope in living out your salvation. Maybe he wants to motivate you to greater and greater degrees of obedience. Maybe he wants to work in you gratitude, thanksgiving. Maybe it's been a while since you have thanked him for his work, his ongoing constant work in your life. Maybe he wants to produce in you humility. Maybe he wants to remind you, look, get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on me. I'm at work in you. Next we see how God's power is at work in us. And it's not explicitly stated in this verse. that The name is the name of the Holy Spirit. And so God's powerful work in us comes through his Holy Spirit. He works in you through his Holy Spirit who lives in you. This was Jesus' promise when he left this earth. He said, I will, ha- I will send a helper. And if you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented and turned away from your sin to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been forgiven of your sins, then his Holy Spirit lives in you. He is with you and in you. And this is how he is at work in you, the Holy Spirit is, is at work in you to convict you of sin, to prompt you to deal with that sin and, and to put it off. 
The Holy Spirit is working in you to lead you in all righteousness. The Holy Spirit is working to lead you in producing the spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you to enlighten your mind, to know and understand and and to recall truth from God's Word. The Holy Spirit is at work in you to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart so that you will worship Him. I trust that many of us are um, actively uh, experiencing this inner working of God upon our lives. And yet, listen, here's, here's a great danger. Uh, we can quench the Holy Spirit. It's possible to quench, to, to resist, and, and to suppress the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, you can turn there if you want, but you can just look up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is a list of commands beginning in verse 12. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good and to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. See, he writes to the church and he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. I mean, maybe you've thought of this. If if the same Holy Spirit dwells within all of his people and he's at work in all of this, then in in all of us, in the same way he, he dwells in us, he's working in us so that we will work out our salvation. Why don't we all experience the unity with one another that we're called to? Could it be that some of us are quenching the Holy Spirit? not obeying the commands of the word, not drawing near to the Lord, not depending on his power in our lives, not uh, fearing and trembling. Some of us, we're not experiencing the fruit of living out our salvation because we're not truly seeking to be led by the Spirit who's at work in us. Some of you are, and and so if, if you are, press on. Press on to to, um, be led by the Spirit of God. It is he that works in you. He's working in you. But if you're not, then I call you today, turn back. Turn back to the Lord. Turn away from whatever it is that's keeping you from being led by the Spirit. Forsake your sin. Identify what is going on in your life and turn to him. Why would we want to live in any way at all that's resistant to the Holy Spirit? Makes no sense. He's so good. His ways are only ever right and good and best. And he wants to lead us and work in us 
so that we would live in a manner that is worthy of him. Next, see this, that God's power extends through his inclusive reach. His inclusive reach. God's power is demonstrated, we see in this verse, in us both to will and to work. He's at work in us both in our doing and in the desires that undergird the doing. And Pastor Ian talked about this last week. I won't... um, spend a lot of time on it, but, but God is working in our hearts so that we will think rightly, we'll have the right affections and desires so that we will then live rightly for him. And he's strengthening us in both avenues. He, he doesn't separate our thinking from our doing. These, these two, again, are a both and together. They're not an either or. He's at work in us to transform our lives, to enable us to to work hard, to extend the effort to live in a manner that is worthy of him. Ezekiel 36 um, is where we find one of the places in the Old Testament, the new covenant. And God says of his covenant people, those who belong to him. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's at work in you, right? In your heart and in your walk. He's at work in you to live out your salvation. Lastly, his power works toward his incomparable joy. His power is at work in us for his incomparable joy. All of this is for his good pleasure. This is what pleases the Lord. The Lord delights to work in you for your good and for his glory. Isn't that amazing? God delights to produce holiness in us. This is what pleases God, to restore his people back to his image. And his Good pleasure also ought to be our greatest pleasure. Amen? He knows our greatest good is found when we're living in a manner that's worthy of him. And he graciously works in us to enable us to live for him. Just both. It's my effort and God's effort. God's power. The Lord is accomplishing his good purposes in us and yet not apart from our striving. It is indeed a mysterious collaboration. He guides us, but we must walk. As I said at the beginning, salvation 
is his work alone.